You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Today's episode features a repeat guest, Erin Kronikan, who first came on the podcast back in season one. She's an actor, director, producer, and coach who will be sharing the difficulties of making theater on stage right now, as well as her own personal struggles off stage. So it's a very weird situation, almost like disembodied, like it's not really happening to me because it's really not as bad as what other people are going through. And then I have to remember, oh, I have terminal cancer. That's pretty bad too. Welcome back, and thank you for joining me on another episode of Why I'll Never Make It, a weekly podcast featuring conversations with creatives about the realities of a career in the performing arts. To get the newsletter, as well as take part in this season's podcast survey, go to whyillnevermakeit.com. Erin Kronikan was one of those handful of creatives who came on the first season of the podcast. And at that time, she was talking about her theater company that she was running, but also about her battle with cancer that she had beaten back in 2016. Making theater today is even tougher, with COVID having shut down so much of the arts in this country. And like many artists, she longs for the days when it wasn't so tough as it is now. Producing theater, uh, productions of theater, was a nice, well-oiled machine. I knew as the show came up exactly what to do every single day leading up to the show, through the show, and then the closing of the show. So now it's just like the wild, wild west. I have no idea what I'm doing. But as if that wasn't bad enough, Erin has also had to deal with her own health issues, as cancer once again has affected her life. I have stage four breast cancer that has um, spread to my lungs, my brain, and my bones. Um, I'm, it's well controlled at this point, so I'm not living with a lot of symptoms from the cancer. Uh, I have a lot of side effects from the chemo. That's a whole other, whole other thing. But um, but the cancer itself is being you know held at bay. But whether it's COVID or cancer, Aaron Kronikan's company, The Seeing Place Theater, has continued to grow since its first production in 2009, creating edgy and compelling reinterpretations of work by master playwrights that reflect the struggles and triumphs of our current society. 
This episode is part one of my conversation with Erin as we dig into her as both an artist and as an individual. And in part two, we'll dig into the nuts and bolts of producing theater in this unique frontier of arts right now. Absolutely. I mean, even in the midst of this crazy pandemic, we're finding ways, new ways to try to stay relevant and stay solvent. The Seeing Place Theater is built and managed by the actors themselves and has a core ensemble group of resident actors. And so we start our conversation by discussing what she's doing to help and engage with that company of actors. Um, well, like uh, most theaters, we've had to postpone our artistic offerings, um, the productions that we're doing. Um, and we're not for the foreseeable future planning on putting anything online. Right now, what we're focused on is uh, we built a, an education and outreach program that is all online right now. And we're really focusing on building that out. Uh, it's an important um, thing for our future as a theater company to have an education program. And though it would be wonderful to be able to do it face-to-face, the ability for us to do it online um, allows for people from all over the country or all over the world to participate in what we're doing. Um, and without this time, with all the producing we were doing before COVID, uh, we didn't have the bandwidth to create another program. So this is forcing us in a way to look at what can we do right now. And I, I'm finding myself being a little grateful that we have this downtime, although I can't be grateful for this horrible thing that we're going through, but we are certainly trying to make the best of it. No, it's really forced a lot of us artists and creatives to think outside the box, which I think is something we were good at as, yeah. as artists and being able to do that. And what have you found to, to be uh, you know, different or challenging about reaching out to a wider audience? Uh, right now it's a, you know, it's a whole new ball game. So we know artistically what we do, what we're doing. We know what we're trying to bring to people. Um, but the marketing of it is very different. Um, trying to find the right audiences is very different. Um, and we're providing many little events. So instead of a three week run of one thing that we're promoting, we're promoting 12 things in the course of three weeks. And so those all have their own baby audiences, um, trying to make sure I'm hitting all of them and that they know about it um, can be challenging. So um, trying to harness the power of social media as best I can and the word of mouth that we've had. Um, so it's starting very slowly, but I, I'm convinced that with anything um, like this, you need to kind of develop a habit and over time, people will start to recognize, oh, the scene place has offerings and they have offerings every week. And if this week doesn't work, next week will work. And so we just have to trust that that's the case and just keep putting out good content. I totally understand. As a podcaster, it's basically the same thing. You you hope people will come and you just keep putting out good stuff constantly on a consistent basis. And you trust that the audience will will be there and will continue to grow. Yeah, that's a good point. It is very similar to what you do because you're you have a through line, of course, with your podcast, um, with the types of guests that you're bringing in. But everybody brings a different story, so there's a whole new audience available. And on the one hand, you're hoping your guest will promote it for you because that gives you access. 
to that audience. But um, yeah, that's the same thing for us. And as COVID has affected so many businesses, both uh, creative and corporate, uh, finances are certainly a struggle for us all individually. And how is Seeing Place managing all that? Well, we're very lucky. Um, we have very little overhead to run our business. Um, we the we do have a deposit down at a theater um, that they've been very generous to allow us to to hold that deposit for whenever things open up again. Uh, we were supposed to be opening our first show uh, in May. And so they allowed us to push the initial deposit to August, which is our next time slot. But now it's looking like August isn't even going to be possible um, for performance. Our next time slot is November. But then we're concerned, you know, maybe the theater won't even be there. What are they doing to pay their rent um, or their mortgage, depending on whether they own or rent the property. So uh, we're, we really don't know what's going to happen, but that's the only financial um, liability we have right now is that deposit that we have down on the theater. Beyond that, all we're paying for is Zoom Pro um, and then our web hosting. So we had money in the bank ready to go for um, our next show. Not enough money, of course. We still needed to fundraise, but we have a little bit of money in the bank. So um, and with starting this education program, we're getting a little bit of cash flow in, which we're pumping back out to our teaching artists so that they have at least a little bit of something and a little bit of money coming in. So we're very lucky uh, financially that we don't have a lot of commitments, but certainly we're very, very concerned about what's going to happen when things open up again, because where are those funds going to come from? Are the donors going to be there the way that they have been in the past? Mm -hmm. Um, Will they be spending money on the theater? We don't know. We hope so. Yeah, I think this time has, and certainly certainly for me, it's made me realize how really interconnected we all are. Like, I think a lot of times us theater folk, we can feel like we're in our own bubble and we kind of, you know, it's it's a very small, tight-knit community generally. But how how dependent we are on, like you said, that theater, how are they paying their bills? And then the building that they're in, how is that building paying its bills? And then how is the bank that holds that? Con- and and it's we really are all interconnected in many ways that I think I hadn't really, really, really thought about before. I knew kind of intrinsically, but, you know, we're, we're, we really are all in this together. And I think it's uh, it's something that, as you said, we have to figure out what this normal is going to look like once things are open again and then what people are going to really want to do with that. Exactly. And, and, you know, I run a theater company, but I'm also a professional actor outside of that. And when are those employers going to go back and will they be able to provide a living wage? And what, you know, with theater in general, there's, there's so many conversations about how it'll be one of the last pieces of industry to come back um, like it was before because of the way that audiences are corralled into a theater space and the kind of intimacy required from the actors. And uh, I mean, it's uh, just, there's no normal to go back to. It's going to, if we open this year at all, 
there would be some very strange requirements that I don't know how we're going to get around in terms of social distancing and masks. And Yeah, because I, I hear about businesses that are asking, have you been coughing? Or do you have a fever? Taking temperatures of people. Like I, I was listening to one news report about a barbershop that's having to do that. And they have to space out everyone 15 minutes in between so that they can clean up after each and every customer. Right. I asked some questions on social media of our followers um, on our theater page, just kind of asking what their thoughts were on theater and when it's coming back. And um, one little piece of good news is there is a consensus amongst our followers that they think they would be more comfortable going back to a small theater than they would a larger theater just because of the number of people and the ability, like you said, of a smaller theater being able to clean things very quickly. Um, you know, our theater is a black box theater where we set up our seating um, differently for each show. So we have a lot more possibility to social distance our audiences um, than let's say a Broadway house. The amount of expense it would cost to socially distance people in a Broadway house is a little crazy, but I think financially, it's a similar hit, you know, to, to limit what I, when we could normally bring 50 people in and now we're only allowed to do 25, how can we possibly make back our expenses on the show? Which then makes you think about, well, what type of production is, is there a two person show that just has a table? Like, you know, right. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, We were kind of joking around our next show that we want to do is a, a hospital drama and it's like, well, we could have masks. We won't <laughs> see anything, but uh, it could be an interactive experience. It. Yeah. Now, another thing that I've been thinking about throughout this quarantine is that term non-essential. And we have been deemed, you know, theaters, artists, you know, we've been deemed non-essential. And I, while in the broader sense, I certainly understand what they mean, but I, I've certainly had to kind of come to terms with being defined as that. Has that presented any thoughts to you? Well, I think it's bogus. Um, That's a kind word for (laughs) podcasting. Uh, Because what are we turning to in this time of crisis is entertainment as much as we can. And it's not just actors. Of course, we're turning to music and um, books and poetry and and many, many different um, kinds of performing arts that are happening on uh, Zoom and Facebook Live and whatnot. Um, so I think that we are essential. Um, it, it's, I think the, what essential means has been cracked wide open because I don't think anybody, um, until you suffer the loss of these industries, people don't think of garbage collection, for example, as being essential Mm -hmm. until you don't have it. And then you say, oh, our way of life is completely destroyed. Um, and we need those grocery workers. We need those. We always knew that doctors and nurses were important to our lives. Um, it's some of these other, um, you know, people who are delivering our food from the restaurants that are staying open. So I'm, I'm aware that artists are not providing those kinds of services, but the mental health support that the arts have provided, it's, um, I think, you know, to be honest, I think it's, um, very uh, similar to how people think about the arts anyway. Um, It's not surprising to me that we would be deemed unessential or non-essential because I think that there has been a trend for a very long time of devaluing the arts with as much as we can get for free online and how 
inexpensive it is now to consume art online. Um, we forget how much money goes into making that. When the distribution streams are so wide, of course, you can pay only $7.99 to have Netflix. But but yeah, I think that were we to take art away, what would our mental health be like? I, I can't even imagine. Yeah. I mean, because something just as simple as going out into the park. I've, I've never been much of a park person here in the city because I'm either out auditioning or I'm doing this or going out to eat. So, you know, so I'm, I'm constantly out in the city, but going to a park per se wasn't always top. But now just being able to walk around the park that's across the street from me is a blessing. And just mm -hmm. something as simple as that. So, yeah, those times, those things that we, we took for granted are now things that we, like, clamor for. Right. And it's the simple things. And I think that's something that, as artists, we have always taken very seriously, looking around at the world and seeing what matters and what stories do we need to tell and what things do we need to call out about what's happening in the world and um, and bringing that to people in a in a packaged story that people can understand. And um, I'm curious to see what stories come out from this. Um, I have to be honest, though, like watching a COVID-19 story, I'm not sure I'm <laughs> ready for that yet. I feel like we're way too much in it to want to, you know, see what's going to come out from that. Well, yeah, even artistic renderings of what 9-11 meant. It took yeah. years for, you know, like come from away. It took years for something like that. And even come from away was kind of two steps removed from actual 9-11. So yes. I think big events like this will will certainly produce some thoughts and some art and, and people trying to make sense of it. But I think like you say, it's gonna to be tough to really dig into it too deeply. Yeah. One bright spot amidst the tragedy that is COVID-19 has been the amazing work and dedication of healthcare professionals, those on the front lines of battling this illness. And for a couple of months here in New York, 7 p.m. was a very special time to honor these essential workers. Clapping, shouting, playing loud music, banging pots and pans, these are all ways that we New Yorkers were showing our appreciation for the work that these healthcare professionals were doing. And for Erin, the work they do is even more essential as she once again is battling cancer. Yeah, it's, it's a little crazy. Um, you know, I did have lung surgery in November 2018, which has left me compromised. The chemo I'm on leaves me immunosuppressed. So, um, and then there's the cancer itself. So I have all of these different um, medical issues that mean that COVID-19 would be especially scary for me were I to contract it. Um, so trying to stay very safe, I really just don't leave the house at all, um, except to go to weekly chemo. And they're very careful there. Um, they've started instituting um COVID testing for all of the cancer patients who are outpatients like me. And the COVID testing is once every three weeks. I've just learned because I had it two weeks ago, uh, my first test, which was negative. Um, and they're going to test me again next week before I can go in and have chemo. And they do temperature checks. They give you a battery of questions. Of course, you're wearing your mask while you're there. Um, 
and they, you know, you can't have visitors anymore. So the cancer center is very, very quiet and everyone's in there by themselves, but yeah, it's, it's a crazy, it's a very crazy um, time to already have an illness and then be dealing with so many other illnesses around you. Um, in a way it's, there's a feeling of solidarity. Like I'm there with you. I understand, but it's also very alienating as well. Um, because I'm not dealing with the same things that other people are dealing with. Um, so yeah, I mean, anytime I post anything about being in chemo, people are like, you're so brave and, you know, wait, I'm really inspired by your strength. And I'm like, these, those people who are in the hospital for COVID, those are brave people. The people who are, you know, helping them fight and those families that are dealing with that, that's what bravery is. So it feels like it's a, it's a very weird kind of situation, almost like disembodied, like it's not really happening to me because it's really not as bad as what other people are going through. And then I have to remember, Oh, I have terminal cancer. That's pretty bad too. Huh. <laughs> you know. Now is is that something that at this point does it feel routine or is it still one of those things that you have to kind of get your get your spirits up again and push through? Um, that's a good question. I think that for the most part it feels routine. Um because I've been in chemo now since March of 2019. So that's a really long time by the way. Most people are in chemo for about 5 months. So um, that's like the typical structure, five to six months for a cancer patient. But when you have stage four cancer, um, there's no cure. So you have to be on a systemic um, therapy. That's pretty much all the time. Um, but there are always surprises. So, you know, I get scans every three months to just see where the cancer's at. And it is very rare for me to get a scan back that's like, everything's great. There's always one thing that's like, but we got this thing that we're looking at. So right now, um, the good news is like, I have no more cancer in my bones. So hooray, yeah. chemo got rid of all that. The cancer in my breast and my lungs has been reduced. So like they're being held at bay and, and they're small, really great. But the um, radiation I had on my brain tumors um, has caused there to be some swelling even a year later, because it's been a year since I had that, which is kind of common, but it hasn't gone away. The swelling's been here for about three or four months now. And so they're like, well, we're going to watch it. And if it doesn't go away by the next scan, we're going to do brain surgery and take out the swell, the tissue that's swelling. Um, because it could be one of two things. It could either be dead tissue from the radiation, which is most likely, or it could be a new growth but they can't tell with the brain scan, which is which. Oh, wow. So they have to go in and take it out. And I'm like, I don't want brain surgery. <laughs> I don't want yeah. that at all. You know, I've got either dead tissue or a live brain tumor. Not good news either way, you know? And how has that, even before COVID came along, how was that affecting you as, as an actor or being able to perform? It's crazy. Um, so... Uh, I'm very, very, very grateful for the chemo um, because before it's kind of a, um, there's been a, it was a very harrowing time when I got diagnosed um, trying to find the right uh, therapies to help me. And I went through about six months of like not knowing if I was going to survive um, before the chemo finally kicked in and started 
reducing things. Um, so I was very, very sick a year ago and, um, and somehow bounced back. Uh, now the side effects from the chemo, um, I have very low blood counts. So my white blood cells are very low. Um, that just means that my immunity is very low. So I have to be careful. Um, but my red blood cells are also low, which makes me anemic and, um, which leads to, um, for me, my hemoglobin and my platelets end up being low. So platelets are important so that you can clot your blood. So um, I have platelet issues. So I have a risk of blood clots. I have had blood clots that luckily did not travel anywhere disastrous, but I did have um, severe issues with blood clots in both, um, both of my arms and my legs uh, last year. And um, low hemoglobin makes you anemic. And so on stage as an actor, uh, I was just doing a show called Animal Farm. Um, it was, we adapted the book um, for the stage and we were doing the whole show on our hands and knees, uh, which was really fun um, playing a bunch of animals. <laughs> but there were times where um, as I was playing Snowball the pig, where uh, I would be um, like speaking to the masses of animals and uh, I'd be up on this little pulpit and we would, the pigs would kind of put themselves upright a little bit as they were leading um, the other animals. And just going from like being bent over to just going upright would make me so dizzy that on stage each night I would say, hmm, is this the night I'm going to pass out? right in front of everybody because I would, I would be just the, just the difference in my body positioning yeah. causes a lot of severe issues. So when I feel that way, I then have to go get blood transfusions and then I'll feel better. Um, so all of the people who are donating blood right now, if it's not going to COVID patients, it's going to people like me. So thank you. Yeah. And I assume because they, they kind of took out a lot of uh, services that hospitals were doing, but I assume that your your therapies and treatments didn't stop at all. They didn't. No, they're considered to be essential. Um, thank goodness, because that was a concern at first. I was like, huh, maybe they'll think I'm stable and they won't give me chemo. No, they're, they're giving me chemo every week still. So going through this process, has it, you know, there's that cliche of, you know, it makes me appreciate life more. Or do, have you gone through those ups as well? It's, it's so interesting. I want to remain like as positive as possible and especially in a podcast like this, but I think, um, I think there are elements of that for me, of course. Um, I'm very grateful to be alive. I'm very, um, aware of how I could not be, especially after being so sick last year, but I'm not experiencing that same, um, like, there are people you can find there are lots of blogs where there'll be cancer survivors or there they say, I'm so grateful to my cancer because I learned something about myself that I never would have known had I not had cancer. And I'm like, no, I really <laughs> would rather not have cancer. Really. I could do without it. I, you know, whatever lesson I, I could take it some other way. Um, and I think that is because cancer is so scary and so many people know um, people who have cancer, um, especially those who are older, um, know people, um, or we know people who are older than us that have it. But um, when young people have it, that's just especially scary. And I think it puts a pressure on us 
to be super positive about everything because otherwise if we can't be positive, then the people around us can't be. And then where are we left? So I, I sort of feel like this whole, like you're a warrior, you know, um, in the, in the stage four community, um, we're not survivors because we survivor would imply that like you've beaten something, but you're still in the middle of it and you will always be in the middle of it. So we call ourselves thrivers instead of survivors. But even that feels a little hollow to me. Um, it feels like it's part of this machine to like pretend that everything's okay. Um, and it's just not, it's just a terrible situation, but you can still have, um, and I try to have as much positivity as I can and as much optimism as I can about the future without having to resort to, um, (laughs) the warrior talk. I don't know. I have strong feelings about it. I mean, it's a personal journey, I would imagine, for each and every person, and and each person is going to deal with it in their own way. And it must be overwhelming at times to know that this is leading to an eventual end. It really is. Um, and I think, I mean, speaking as an actor and a theater producer, you know, we're looking at when when we have the conversation about when the world's going to open up again and let us do our art again. Um, I can see my life in about three month chunks. Like I know if like for my next scan in three months, how I'm going to feel if everything, if the chemo doesn't work anymore, how long is that going to take for me to start feeling bad? It's about three to six months. So I can like plan just about that much time. The idea that we might not open theaters until 2021 or the fall of 2021, when they're saying 18 months until a vaccine, and I don't actually know if I'm going to be here. Hmm. I hope so. I mean, I I really do hope so, but I don't know. And so I start to think, oh my gosh, is the last time I get on a stage, was that in February of 2020? Was that it? You know, and then, you know, it's a very sobering sort of discovery. Um, And I think, um, going back to this idea of like, can't, do you look at things differently? I would ask everyone who's listening right now, how does COVID make you feel? Does it make you feel like every day is a new opportunity because you have your health or are you traumatized? And my guess is that it's a little bit of both. And that's how I feel because I'm not out of it. I'm in it. And when we're in the midst of a trauma, you can't be fighting that trauma and also on the outside commenting on it and noticing it. And it's, um, it's much more complex than that. Yeah, because this isn't, you know, a year ago when, when it kind of really hit, that, that wasn't your first time, your first bout with cancer. This is a coming back to it. Yeah, so it wasn't, it's kind of weird with um, different cancers have different terminology to describe their paths. Um, for breast cancer, um, you become, after you finish all of your treatments, they test you. And if there's no evidence of cancer, then you're considered to be cancer free. So it's not like a remission where you have had cancer and it's just sleeping and we can't find it anymore. They consider you to be cancer free. So as of um, March of 2016, I was cancer free. I'd finished I'd had surgery and chemo and radiation, and I was good to go. 
but then they watch you for five years because um, within five years is when it likes to recur, if it's going to recur. Um, and so I went through, you know, two years, two and a half years of um, no disease and then poof, it just came back. Um, so it wasn't like I was in remission. I was truly cancer free and now I have stage four cancer. Um, and it's, and stage four is, it's not the kind of thing where I didn't catch it in time. Um, it's not like it grew so big that all of a sudden I went through all the stages and it got to stage four. What makes it stage four is that, um, it had traveled through my bloodstream to other organs. So, um, that can happen, um, you know, in an, in an instant. So, um, and it probably traveled through the bloodstream way, way, way long ago and just didn't turn on for whatever reason until we ended up finding it. Um, so there was no, uh, it's, it's one of those things where you think about like, if you just have early detection, you'll be fine. Um, when you're talking about someone who's never had cancer before, yes, that's true. Um, but when someone has had cancer, um, it can just happen like in a snap. Because in that five-year period, you were having regular tests, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going in every three months to get tested. And so somehow between one test, it was clear. And three months later, there it was again. Yeah. And in fact, I didn't even know that I had it. Um, It was, I got pneumonia. I was performing in a show off Broadway. And one day I was like, I can't really sing how weird. And I didn't really get better, um, over lots of time. Um, and so I went in to get, went to a doctor, went to urgent care and they're like, Oh, you have pneumonia. And I had no idea. So I had like walking pneumonia and he said, and when we did the x-ray, we saw a little something in your breast area. You might want to go to your OBGYN and get that checked out. And I was like, well, except I'm a cancer survivor. So, Huh. And, uh, and so I ended up going in and getting a mammogram because that's what, um, even though I'm young, they, you know, if you're a cancer survivor, they'll, they will approve that for you. Um, and turned out, yes, I had cancer in the breast again. And the person who looked at my x-ray was like, but it might just be scar tissue from your previous surgeries. So just, you know, go get it checked out sometime. So the onus was really on me to decide how serious that was. Hmm. And sure enough, I, like I said, I went and got it checked out. So I got my first diagnosis, which is you have a local recurrence in the breast, but that's not stage four. That could be like a recurrence from the original cancer. It could be a new cancer. Um, And then they do another scan for the rest of your body to see if it's traveled anywhere. And then sure enough, it had traveled. So um, I didn't even, I had no idea how to not gotten pneumonia, which wasn't even um, related to the cancer. It was just a random pneumonia that I got Yeah, in the middle of the summer. It was weird. Yeah. Th- no, my, my husband got pneumonia in, in summer as well. So, you know, it can happen at any time. And, and he, he really had a bout with it as well. It really affected him just in being able to physically walk and just his energy level. So yeah, pneumonia can really knock you out. Yeah. yeah. That's for sure. Now, Getting that second diagnosis, hearing cancer for the second time, was it harder? Was it easier? Was it like, okay, here we go again? What was that like? Um, 
it in some ways it was I mean, it was harder because this diagnosis was different. The first one was like, you have cancer, but it's beatable. And we're going to throw all this stuff at you and, and we're going to get it. And this one was like, you're going to die. We don't know when, but our job is to make you comfortable and try to try to prolong your life as much as possible. So um, that conversation is much different. Um so, so it did, I did have a sense of like, here we go again, in that I've been through this before, so I'm somewhat aware, but I also remembered how difficult it was. And so there was a sense of like, oh my God, am I going to lose my hair again? Um, and luckily, no, because the chemo I'm on now um, does not cause hair loss, which I'm very, very grateful for. Um, but uh, so it was a whole mix of things, but there certainly is... Um, a feeling of like, this is going to kill me. And I don't know when is it going to happen in six months for some people it does, you know, and for some people they live a lot longer, the average age um, or average amount of time that someone lives after a diagnosis like this is three years. Hmm. So some people live longer, some people don't. Um, and so it's been uh, a year and a half. That's why it's like, huh, you know, I don't know if I have to wait another year to go on stage again because of COVID. And I don't know if I'm going to be here. I hope. Where have you found your, your greatest level of support? Does it come from within you, from others, from, from being in theater? What, what's kept you going? Um, good therapy. That helps. <laughs> um, I think that's good for all of us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, for me, it took a little bit of time and I had read online um, from some other stage four cancer patients. They're like, you know, rage, get depressed, you know, give yourself that time. And then you'll realize, Oh, I'm still alive. Okay. It's now time to get down to business and figure out what my life is for, but don't push yourself too fast because you have to get through this shock, this initial shock. Um, and I'm still trying to figure out, what I'm supposed to do that, you know, at the beginning of the year, you know, during new years, everyone either comes up with resolutions or they come up with a word for the year. Um, and my word for this year was legacy. So what is the legacy that I want to leave? What are the things I want to do, which is distinct from a bucket list, by the way, I have a story about that, but, yeah. uh, but like, what's my legacy? What, what's the thing that I want to say and I want to be known for. Um, and that is very confronting because I found that some of the things that I had filled my life with, I no longer believed were part of my legacy. So um, started to strip those away. And then now this pandemic has stripped everything away. So we almost all get to start from scratch again and figure out what we want to be doing and how we want to do it. Yeah, so that term of legacy, it's basically a way for you to think about how you want to be remembered or rather what what's going to be most purposeful and important to me. Yeah, what's most purposeful and um, how do I want to spend my time? Um, and then not like the day-to-day -day time, like a lot of times. <clears throat> and I, again, I keep focusing like what people are dealing with in the pandemic. It's very similar to how I've been dealing with cancer. It's like, I thought with this downtime, you know, I 
stopped working full time once I got diagnosed. Now I'll have time to read. Now I'll have time to like, maybe I'll learn to paint because that would be really fun for me or I'll pick up a new language. And then you find you're just like eating like hostess ding-dongs on your couch and watching (laughs) Tiger King. And then that's what you're doing, you know? And I feel like everyone is sort of getting it now. And so I feel a lot of solidarity with what I've been dealing with. But, um, but yeah, uh, the thing about, uh, I can't tell you the number of people who have asked me like what's on my bucket list once they found out I was, you know, uh, diagnosed with a terminal illness. And it's very hard to think about like, what are the things that I want to do before I die? And in a way, it's a very privileged sort of list because everything on my list are things I can't afford to do, (laughs) right? I don't have the money to go to Europe again um, to spend a month, you know, traveling the countryside or I have to work or I have things that I need to do here. I don't have time or I don't have the health, you know? So bucket lists are not for people who are dying or for people who are like living and have the means and have like, so get that done earlier. Once you're like where I'm at now, I have to figure out what I want in the last stages of my life. Like, what do I want to be doing when I am in the hospital and I know I'm not going to leave the hospital? What am I going to regret not doing? And uh, try to focus on those things. But that's, a, it's very hard to think about because our brains don't want us to contemplate the, that kind of end of life stuff. It's interesting, as you were saying that, it got me thinking, at this moment, do you think more about what you can do for others or what you need to do for yourself? Um, to me, they're interlinked. I think... I think for me personally, doing for others um, is so much at the core of who I am that um, when I was really just focusing on my own health and trying to survive from day to day before the chemo kicked in last year, um, I didn't feel like myself. I didn't feel like I was, my identity was very, it was kind of lost. And it's only been maybe um, in the last six months where I started to feel like I had something to contribute again and trying to figure out how I'm going to do it um, is how, you know, what's really important to me and how I want to be connected to people. And what does that mean? Um, Because there are some things that I'm just not interested in doing anymore. Um, And so uh, for me, and I, I think that's a very personal question for most people dealing with things. I'm not trying to suggest that everyone has to live for other people. Um, But it is something that has been at the core of who I have been for so long that to throw that away um, just feels strange to me. But I think this is also a time for self care um, and just listening to myself and like what gets me out of bed every day is like, I have a lot of stuff in my head, um, call that knowledge, call that experience, call that creativity, whatever. Um, and if I'm not sharing it, it just feels weird. So I'm trying to figure out how to share it. Over the last year in, in my own life, there's been a feeling of, of disconnect of, of feeling like, okay, I've been down this one path. I've been doing this. Was it really fulfilling me? Mm -hmm. And I can only imagine having, 
you know, with, with cancer, I would imagine that it really put that in the forefront. And as you said, this legacy, what is it that's really going to, what, what am I doing with my life? What is it, what's really going to matter? And is, and is that what this, this last six months or so have been about figuring out what really matters to you? Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Um, and, you know, there's so many trade-offs in the things that we do. I think, um, going back to being an actor, uh, I think a lot of people think, oh, you're following your dreams. How lucky for you that you get to do that. And they forget about the sacrifices that we accept in order to do what we want to do. And so I've started to weigh um, what are the sacrifices um, alongside um, the benefits of the things that I have filled my life with. And I'm weighing those things much more carefully now. I'm looking at those sacrifices and saying, are they really that important? Um, is this thing that I'm sacrificing for that important? Do I want to have this kind of stress in my life? Do I want to, you know, um, and what kinds of stress are energizing? Because I find that sometimes um, demands and deadlines and, um, being accountable to people can actually be very exciting, but in certain circumstances. So what are those circumstances where I'll accept that kind of stress? Um, and what are the kinds uh, that I want to let go of? And um, it is forcing me, and I imagine a lot of people going through this trauma during COVID too, are they're having to re-examine who they are and their identity is getting complete. And people who have run restaurants for years and are closing now their restaurant. Who are they now that they're not a, a restaurant owner? Yeah. What does that mean for them? Do they have to pick up and start over at some point? Do they not? Do they transition to something else? That's how I sort of feel like I'm, you know, operating. Yeah. Cause certainly I've been thinking, all right, well, if something like this can, can shut down theater and then I have no income, what, what else am I good for? What else can I do? What, like, how can I, have not just and make money, but how can I have a living and mm -hmm. something else? And so it's, it's made me even reconsider this path that I've chosen, the, these sacrifices that I've made. Yeah. And then what happens to your identity? Mm -hmm. and what's that like? And are you giving up? And, um, and it just, it's way too traumatic to think about those things while you're in the midst of the trauma. So we're going to be dealing with this far beyond when things open up. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. And so going forward, as you said, you're kind of planning, you're looking ahead three to six months. Mm -hmm. What is it that you're filling your time with? What have you, have you found uh, is giving your, your day-to-day -day purpose and meaning? Um, I'm just kind of operating as though things are going to open up and I'll go back to doing things like I used to until you know, the situation shows me that that's not going to happen. So I'm still taking voice lessons and I'm still preparing audition material. Um, I'm still preparing, you know, trying to keep our theater company afloat as best we can, trying to motivate our ensemble who still gets together once a week uh, to train. We just use Zoom instead of training um, in person. Uh, we read plays. Uh, we... Um, are trying, like all of our, our ensemble are contributing as teaching artists to this program that we're doing. Um, so just trying to 
grow as much as possible in this time um, to support whatever is going to come down the pike once things open up again. So that's, it's kind of a day-to-day thing for me. Um, I try not to think too far in the future, although it's very hard as a, I'm kind of a strategic um, planner. And so um, it's been very challenging to come up with a plan and be able to follow it when we don't know when things are going to open up again. But having the education program really helps because I can do it now. I can be planning now for today and tomorrow and next week and next month. We can do this for as long as we need to. Um, And so it's been really um, soothing for my soul to have this project to work on. And in that planning, has that, those final days and what would happen after you're gone, have you started to put plans in place for what that's going to look like? Kind of slowly. Um, you know, I've, I have a will, you know, so like financial planning is like obviously really important. And, um, my mother recently passed away and I've been dealing with her affairs and like being a part of that process gives me some clarity and how I want to plan for my own. Um, and then any nonprofit needs to have a succession plan, whether or not, um, there's somebody who has a terminal illness. So that's something that we're working on with our board. You know, what happens if we're any nonprofit leader, if they decide to leave for whatever reason, all the knowledge I have in my head needs to be, you know, on paper or in the computer somewhere to be able to be passed on to other people. So that's something that we think about as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a very uh, sobering uh, thing to be thinking about. But um, the more that I try to um, just put good in the world, then I can at least emotionally feel like I, like I can handle the, the, the sort of planning. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron, this has been a, a, a very uh, touching conversation. So I really appreciate you being open and, and sharing your story. Oh, you're welcome. And I apologize to your listeners. If you are all depressed now, uh, go have some bourbon like I am going to do. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. I I think when you relate it to COVID, even though your situation is different and you have COVID on top of it, I think it makes us in some way appreciate it as far as taking it seriously and seeing what's uh, what's important and what really Mm -hmm. matters. And so I think that it's, uh, it's good to kind of get those reality checks every now and then. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And so I'm, I'm, I, I really am grateful and in, in, in my own way, and I'll just let you know this, that, you know, o- over this last year, as I've been following your journey online and everything, uh, part of the reason to bring you back was because I don't know how long you're going to be around. And I wanted to have something, um, I don't know, something that, that's, that's tangible that, part of that legacy that you're building. So this can be something that people can listen to on down the road. That really means a lot to me, Patrick. I really appreciate it. As an actress and creative, Erin's story was already inspiring and motivating, but her personal will and strength that have guided her through this bout with cancer has been even more inspiring. If you'd like to contribute to the Seeing Place Theater and continue the work that she's doing through that ensemble company, you can donate at seeingplacetheater.com. 
A link to their donation page will be in the show notes. And whether you're wanting to give back and donate to a company like Aaron's, or you're wanting to grow your own artistry and creative career, this podcast has compiled different offers and opportunities from previous guests, and you can find them all on one page of the website, resources.winmepodcast.com. Don't forget to stay tuned for part two of my conversation with Erin as we talk about what she's doing now through COVID to stay creative, as well as the struggles of taking theater, a live onstage experience, into the digital age online and streaming. It's a really interesting conversation and it brought up issues that even I hadn't thought about and how actors' equity is and is not as much of a help as it could be during this time. Well, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, reminding you that the reasons for not making it may seem countless and arbitrary, but the reasons to keep on going are even more numerous and rewarding. Let's get together next time as we talk more about why I'll never make it. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.